Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. On the 21st of July 2021, the Nationality and Borders Bill passed its second reading stage in the House of Commons by 101 votes. It can still be amended in committee and by the House of Lords, but the basic principle of this legislation has now been signed off by MPs. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you'll probably know what the basic principles are of this bill, broadly speaking, being nasty to refugees. So we're not going to rehearse the sort of basic contours of the bill on this podcast. We'll assume people broadly know what it does. So what we're going to do instead is look at some bits of the bill that might have been overlooked, uh, more obscure, but still potentially interesting clauses. And joining me for this is Free Movement's very own editor, Colin Yeo. Hey, Colin. Hi, CJ. It's nice having you do the intro for a change. I'm, I'm quite enjoying <laughs> pretending to be a guest. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we were planning to try and get some uh, external guests in, but everyone seems to be out enjoying the glorious weather. So uh, listeners are stuck with us. Um, before we get into this, these lesser known clauses, I, I wanted to ask you about something that did make headlines, uh, was quite high profile. And this is the idea that the bill would make it a criminal offence for RNLI, the lifeboat charity, to rescue drowning asylum seekers in the English Channel. And this has been a, quite a big part of the public debate on the bill. Uh, it was mentioned in Parliament uh, and all sorts. And um, it originated with you. You made this point first in your article on the same day the bill was published, just a couple of hours later. So maybe just explain your reasoning for people who haven't read that piece. Why? How does the bill potentially criminalise rescuing uh, rescues at sea? Yeah, I I wasn't sure about this when I first was reading through. And I was wondering, you, you, know, you look at the changes they're making, obviously you have to think about what are they intending with those changes, but also what might be the other effects of those changes. And because the RNLI had been in the news, um, I think Robert Wright had written a big piece um, for the uh, FT and Nigel Farage had been going on about them. It, w- one of the things that crossed my mind is that, well, you know, does, is this aimed at them? Might it have an impact on them? So I put a feeler out on on Twitter um, before sort of publishing the article. You know, we were both frantically working away that day trying to sort of get through and get something up that that, <laughs> that, that wasn't wrong as well. <laughs> it's quite important when you're doing these things. Um, yeah. And so I sort of put a feeler out on Twitter and said, you know, what do other lawyers think? And it got picked up by a few other people and was quite quickly doing the rounds. And you know, I, nobody was contradicting my interpretation. So I thought sort of, maybe this maybe this is actually something that is an it is an effect. Whether it's an intended effect or not is a is a slightly different question. But basically, it just removes the words "and for gain" from an existing criminal offence, Section Twenty Five A of the Immigration Act, nineteen seventy one. So that it reads. He knowingly facilitates the arrival or attempted arrival or the entry or attempted entry into the United Kingdom of an individual. And he knows or has reasonable cause to believe the individual is, is an asylum seeker. And then later on in the same section, there is a, a carve out which exempts people who work for an organization which aims to assist asylum seekers. So if you're actually working for a refugee charity, then you wouldn't be caught by this. But if you're working, not for a refugee charity, charity, if you're the RNLI, or if you are just a sailor, for example, who who spots some asylum seekers, then my view is that, and I'm slightly tentative about this still, but I, I remain to be convinced otherwise, should we say, this seems to me to criminalise your behaviour. If you do help them and bring them to the UK, you facilitate their arrival. You mentioned that it may not be in the intention of the bill, and that's certainly what the immigration minister had to say in his House of Commons speech uh, on Tuesday about the bill. And let me also reassure the House, and in particular, my honourable friend, the member for Folkestone and Hive, um, that there is no intention in this bill to criminalise bona fide, genuine rescue operations by the RNLI. 
Yeah, I think that's quite revealing wording. They didn't say that it doesn't. They said there's no intention to. And I, 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 I don't think they've necessarily thought this through. You know, there, there was no consultation, as far as I'm aware, anyway, on, on this aspect of, of things. So nobody had a chance to really sort of think this through. It's far from unknown for the Home Office to be making changes that it hasn't consulted on and it hasn't thought through properly. You know, immigration law is riddled with, uh, yeah, excuse my language, but you know, just crap changes that don't have the impact that they're supposed to have or or have an unintended effect. And this looks to me like it may well be one of those changes. Um, so I, I think I, hopefully this will be getting some attention during the committee stages. And, um, you know, it, I can't, the reason why I was tentative about this, is that I do not think the government would deliberately criminalise the RNLI. I just don't, I, you know, a lot of people are very cynical about the current government and, and I am as well, but I just don't think that actually they would intend to criminalise the RNLI or somebody carrying out a genuine rescue at sea. But it's it's far from impossible that they might accidentally criminalise somebody in that position. They probably wouldn't be prosecuted. I, I know I'd really struggle to see a prosecution being brought, but nevertheless, you know, actually framing the criminal law so that they've convi- they've, they've committed the offence, even if you don't prosecute them for it, is just, that's really bad lawmaking. Let's move on to these less well-travelled elements of the bill. There are five parts to the bill, and part one makes a series of changes to British nationality law. Arguably, all of those changes are a little bit obscure, um, but mostly positive. They're about helping people to get citizenship, uh, which which we always like. But there's one bit that is about stopping people getting citizenship. That's Clause 9 on stateless children. And the context here, children born in the UK without citizenship of any country can become British under the statelessness rules. Um, but now under Clause 9, there'll be an additional criterion that the Secretary of State is satisfied that the person is unable to acquire another nationality. So not only does the child need to have no citizenship at birth, but would be unable to apply for citizenship of of any other country. And only then would they be able to rely on these statelessness rules. So what's going on there? Why are they doing that? Well, as as background, um, normally if a child is born in the UK, they can register as British um, once they've been living here for 10 years continuously. I won't get into the exact details, but that's broadly the the case. But there's a special rule if they are stateless, which is that they can register after five years instead if they were born in the UK. Um, And that's quite useful for those children. And it's the, the intention is to reduce statelessness so that those children actually have a nationality sooner rather than later. And frankly, you know, if, if, if they are going to be living here for that long, then they, they're they're probably going to stay in a lot of cases. But um, there's a case called MK from 2017. I'll just give you the reference. It's 2017 EWHC 1365 admin on the 14th of June, 2017. And it's a, it's a high court decision. I think the judge was um, well-known in the immigration tribunal. I think it was Mr. Ockleton or deputy judge Ockleton, as I think he'd be called in that context. Um, And it was basically about a, a child whose parents were Indian. And the way that Indian nationality law works is that a child, as I understand it from this case, is that a child born abroad doesn't to, to Indian parents doesn't automatically acquire Indian citizenship. Now that's I think fairly unusual. So a British child born, uh, sorry, a child born abroad to British parents, first generation at least, is automatically born British, whether they like it or not. Basically, but that's not how Indian law works. Instead, they have to be registered at the embassy or the consulate, as I, as I understand it. And because the parents in that case hadn't done that, they they were able to say that their child met the definition of stateless. 
and therefore was able to register as British after five years of residence instead of 10 years of residence. And it looks like this statutory change is intended to deal with that case, even though the number of children who must be registering because of it must be absolutely tiny. So it's another example of somebody's got a real bee in their bonnet at the Home Office, and they have decided to change British nationality law in order to plug what they see as some sort of, you know, um, hole in the in the dam or, or something of that. I, I don't know why they act like they do in these kind of situations where we're talking about tiny numbers of people, but that, that, that looks like to me what's going on here. Yeah, so it's a hypothetical loophole rather than an issue that rather than there being hordes and hordes of Indian parents deliberately making their children stateless. Yeah, I imagine there's a few every year. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is a lot. I can't imagine it really is. And uh, and it's hard to see what the harm done is as well, frankly. So, um, yeah, but I think that seems to be anyway uh, the context to this. And it seems to be what it's what the change is aimed at. Yeah, they certainly haven't given any figures on abuse. They've just given figures saying, oh, statelessness applications are going up, um, which, as Emma Harris points out in her article, it it doesn't speak directly to uh, the point they're making. But uh, nevertheless, that is in the bill, Clause 9. Let's go to our second uh, example of a slightly obscure clause and about how the UN Refugee Convention is interpreted in domestic UK law. I know you love all things Refugee Convention, so tell us about Clause 30. This is about whether an asylum seeker is a member of a particular social group, which is, as I understand it, one of the triggers for being recognised as a refugee under the Convention. And the bill seems to make it more difficult for judges to recognise a given group of people as forming a particular social group. Can you explain how it does that? Yeah, and the background to this, and I don't know how far, go, how far to go back, but the background is basically that there's two, internationally, there's two ways, generally speaking, of interpreting the, the, the Refugee Convention where it says membership of a particular social group. This is, good. this is one of the reasons you've got to be persecuted in order to qualify for refugee status. And in the UK, we've, we, we follow the case of Shah and Islam from back in the late 90s. And um, in that case, they followed respectable line of international jurisprudence, um, which is basically that um, a social group is similar to the other kinds of convention reasons. And it's got to be uh, some sort of quality or characteristic that you can't change or cannot be expected to change. But there's another line of international jurisprudence, which says that a social group is something that is recognizably yeah, recognizably a group in that society. And somehow at the time that the qualification directive was being drawn up for the EU, so this was the kind of big effort to harmonize um, EU asylum law between different countries where different interpretations were followed. As part of that process, rather than having an or between those two alternative approaches, they ended up with an and where you have to meet both the Shah and Islam approach and also the recognizable social group approach. And um, that was a bit weird, frankly, and rather unfortunate. And then the impact of that was rather ameliorated by a later House of Lords case, the case of Kay and Fauna. That was, um, I'll give you the neutral reference, 2006 UKHL 46. Um, and in that case, the House of Lords said, well, look, it's, you should just read it as if it's an or. It doesn't, you know, don't read it as if it's an and, read it as if it's an or, job done. Basically, and they said a few other things as well. I'm not going into that. Not going to get into that now. Um, so that's the, been the situation since that that case came out, the K and Fauna case came out. But now, um, for some bizarre reason, the Home Office has decided to incorporate the EU 
qualification directive approach directly into primary law. And it's not quite so easy to just ignore as it is when it's in regulations or in EU law, which is a minimum standard. So, you know, the qualification directive is a minimum standard. You can always be more generous than it. So there was no problem with kind of enhancing protection from that, that, that position. And it was not, it's not that hard to kind of overrule um, regulations either in terms of kind of, you know, the, the role of judges and the Supreme Court and so on. But I think it's a lot harder for judges to go behind primary legislation. So on the one hand, it looks pretty innocuous because all this is doing is building in the existing EU law definition of social group. But on the other hand, actually is apparently on the face of it, forcing us to to use an and approach rather than or approach. I'm not sure that judges will actually go down that road. I, I don't know. I mean, this sort of thing that it's a, it's a stupid change. It probably doesn't have much impact really because most People, most social groups um, that you'd identify through one of the methods, you'd also identify through the other anyway. So it probably doesn't affect that many people. Um, but it's bound to be litigated. There's going to be a load of cases going up, probably you know, up to the Court of Appeal, if not the Supreme Court, to look at whether this really does have any um, impact and whether a different approach has to be taken because this is law, primary law, as opposed to regulations in EU law and stuff. And, and there are several other changes in the bill which are of the same nature. Um, you know, the meaning of well-founded fear and stuff like that. It's just like, what is the point? Uh, it's, all it's doing is re- almost inviting, not just almost, it actually invites litigation um, and a huge amount of uncertainty, um, probably for, for no ultimate impact it probably won't reduce the number of successful asylum claims or anything like that that's that's an important point i suppose that it's even though they may be setting out to uh, you know reduce the number of successful asylum claims with these tweaks you reckon it won't necessarily have a massive impact apart from the complicating issues that you mentioned yeah i think it'll have an impact in in just delaying things because loads of cases get get stacked behind the leading cases where we're trying to work out what all this means but i, I don't think it'll have any impact in actually reducing the success rate which is at a historic high level you know 50% of cases going before the home office are getting asylum at the moment and then about 50% of appeals are as well that's really high on both counts Okay, moving on then, one of the main themes of this bill, according to the Home Office itself, is to remove people from the UK who have no right to be here. But then we have Clause 43, uh, which actually offers people being removed from the country more protections rather than fewer protections, on the face of it anyway. And in particular, people will now be entitled to five days notice of the exact date of their removal, as opposed to the three-month window that that sort of has been in place previously where you can be you know you're given a three-month period and then you can be removed without further warning uh, you'll now get five days of a five days notice of a specific date uh, will that make a big difference do you think i don't think so i think five days isn't very long but at least it's a kind of concrete requirement it, it seems a bit strange to put it into primary legislation i'm not quite sure why that is you could easily have sort of notice regulations um, that would have the same effect i guess maybe it's so that that notice period can't be overruled by the courts later. So they can't say actually five days isn't enough. It needs to be 10 or 14 or, or something like that. But, you know, it, it will, will, I guess we'll see in practice. But certainly having it in primary legislation is interesting, probably not good news down the line. Um, but on the face of it, you know, it is better than the removal window situation, which is if it actually operated as a removal window, which it doesn't now because the courts have said it's a really stupid idea, um, then then it's you know it's better than that. But the way that the removal windows have been kind of interpreted by the courts 
um, and that kind of been rolled back by the courts effectively so that notice did have to be given. It wasn't doing that much damage at the moment anyway. So although it's it's an improvement on the primary legislation, it's probably not an improvement on what's actually having happening in practice at the moment on the ground. Okay, that's in- that's interesting. Uh, part four of the bill is about human trafficking. There is a bit about disqualifying people from trafficking support if they have claimed to be a victim of trafficking in quote-unquote bad faith. Uh, this is clause 51. And it seems to say, if I read it correctly, that this bad faith disqualification would apply after someone has passed the initial sort of filtering stage of the support system. So you've received your what's called a positive reasonable grounds decision. You've been signed off by the Home Office effectively as being probably a victim of trafficking. Um, But then with this bad faith clause, after that stage, they can turn around and say, well, nevertheless, you've acted in bad faith, whatever that means. uh, So we're not going to take your application any further and we won't consider you for for, uh, support. Yeah, this seems like a really strange idea. Uh, It's just, it looks like a kind of, I I think I saw a phrase somebody was using earlier, um, a solution in search of a problem. Even the idea of claiming to be a fact trafficking victim in bad faith. I just don't understand what that means. What you put yourself into a position of being trafficked, which is where you're exploited against your will, somehow in, in a cynical way or something. I, I just, it's just nonsense. Um, so it it it, it seems to have it seems to have yeah. It's a really bad idea just generally, and then it also doesn't seem to have any real world impact at all. It's maybe just something that you know the the drafters have put in to satisfy ministerial pressure frankly which i think is often the case with this stuff yeah because fundamentally what they're after is people who are claiming to be trafficking victims but they aren't in which case they should be filtered out by the system anyway yeah just turn them down exactly yeah so i just don't i just don't get it i think it's just it's one of those things where basically there's pressure to to put something in so that the the parliamentary draftsmen who've been working on this have to put something in and this is this is the best they could come up with that would satisfy the minister even though it has no actual impact does the fact that the bill doesn't actually define bad faith make it dangerous because you could have kind of subjective reasons for genuine victims being declined on some esoteric interpretation of that term well maybe this is where my imagination fails me i'm not sort of um cynical enough i don't know um ultimately you know the courts would interpret what bad faith means and the the natural meaning seems to me to be to be pretend something that you're not essentially uh, i think that's what bad faith means to me and so I, I that's that's why i say i just can't see how this changes the existing law at all anyway because if you're not actually a victim of trafficking then then you'll get turned down anyway um so so how does this help Finally, then, let's just look at the very last clause of the bill, which is about legislative consolidation. There are, as we know all too well, lots and lots of acts of parliament touching on immigration from the Immigration Act 1971 to the, I guess, the Immigration Act 2016. And the Home Office uh, seems, by this clause and the accompanying notes, uh, to be saying that it wants to tidy up all these acts and, I guess, produce one giant immigration act. And the rationale there would be that it would just make things easier to understand, which is absolutely a name we can get behind. It does, for practicing lawyers who already know all the old legislation, it does seem like that would be a massive faff because every single reference to immigration legislation that people carry around in their heads will would be obsolete overnight if this goes through. So I guess, although it's a it's not a substantive change. It, it could be quite important, I would say, on a 
practical day-to-day level for practitioners that everything they know about statutory immigration law <laughs> will, will have changed overnight i don't know what your editing skills are like but if yeah if it was up to me we'd, we'd add in a kind of windy graveyard with bell tolling in the background or something at this point it's just like you you might think this is funny cj but it's not this is not funny yeah the idea that we'd have to relearn everything and uh just absolute nightmare um yeah i, I and i don't think we made I'm not sure if we even mentioned this in the um, in the write up because it's kind of not an immediate impact, um, but this is you know potentially major news if it was actually to happen. I'm not sure it ever will. You know, the idea of consolidation. There was a simplification bill back in 2009, and the uh, the parliamentary draftsmen who were working on it were told at the time it was never going to become law, but they they still had to do it anyway. It's presumably somewhere still in, you know, the the archives of Parliament. Somewhere it could be dragged out, or they could start again. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's quite hard to imagine it actually happening. But what I mean, what is notable about this is that basically the Home Secretary is given um, power to make any change to, to to nationality or immigration law um, she wants, um, just by means of regulations, and that is a massive power. Um, I suppose it has to be linked to consolidation, which is a kind of limiting factor in some way. If you look at the explanatory notes, it does talk about consolidation. Um, you know, there is a, it does suggest that that's on the cards and that this could be in some way useful to bring that forward in some way. I, I can't quite see how, but that's, that's apparently the purpose of it. Well, we'll wait and see. And yes, I, I do share your pain of about that prospect because obviously we have a vast array of materials on our website that i suppose we would have to change in the event that all the legislation was renamed uh, effectively so we shall hope that uh, never happens thanks colin for your time and thanks everyone for listening we'll be back with our usual monthly roundup on the 13th of august until then goodbye <laughs>